The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hmm. Now, the last couple of weeks in this morning class, we've been looking at various ways that our minds, our human minds, you know, we share these tendencies. Our human minds tend to get caught, tend to, uh, you know, we have a very human, human tendencies to when there's something pleasant happening, we want to move towards it, we want to keep it, we want to uh, have it. You know, kind of a tendency towards desiring to have pleasant experience around us. And likewise, if there's something unpleasant happening, we have a tendency to want to get rid of it, to push it away, to uh, control it, to fix it, to change it. These very human tendencies, um, which seem so commonsensical, you know, happiness would come from finding ways to surround myself by pleasant things and get rid of unpleasant things. The Buddha discovered in his own uh, journey, in his own understanding, that these tendencies don't lead towards a deeper kind of happiness. They lead to a very surface kind of happiness, a very impermanent kind of uh, satisfaction, a, a very a fleeting kind of happiness. And in his journey, he was looking for a more reliable kind of happiness. And so the exploration he made, he actually discovered that not only do these tendencies not lead towards a more reliable kinds of happiness, they actively get in the way of a more reliable kind of happiness. That by buying into those movements of sense desire, of greed, and of aversion, we are cultivating the conditions to just stay on that kind of hamster wheel <laughs> of that's how I find happiness. Those, those states of mind of, of greed and aversion cannot fathom another way to, uh, to be in the world. They're, um, they're uh, deeper misunderstanding of how happiness might be found is embedded in both. And that misunderstanding, a deeper misunderstanding of how happiness might be found is a form of delusion. So the Buddha pointed to three basic tendencies of our minds that catch us human tendencies of our mind, but human tendencies that are not hardwired, but are really effectively learned. And this tendency towards a greed, a tendency towards aversion, and a tendency towards delusion. So today I'd like to spend some time exploring delusion with you. Greed and aversion in terms of beginning to, to explore them in our practice. I mean, one of the, what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks is looking at how can we not just say, oh, here's, here's wanting something pleasant, here's wanting to get rid of something unpleasant. How do I stop doing that? Because that's just another form of aversion or another form of greed. How can I control my mind? And our minds are not 
so amenable to just like being switched on or off like that. And so what we explore is opening to and beginning to recognize through mindfulness what these tendencies are and how they function. And so we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. We explore what is aversion? How does it function? What is greed? How does it function? And what we discover in that exploration is that as we explore greed, we discover that we are missing, we are missing the fact that um, in being caught by greed, we are experiencing the greed itself, which is very dissatisfying. Greed itself has a very unpleasant quality to it, but we miss that because we're focused on the idea that we're going to get something and the, the kind of fantasy in our mind of how great it will be when we get something is obscuring or deceiving us or creating a film of delusion that we're not able to see the pain of the wanting itself. Something similar happens with aversion. And so what the mindfulness begins to do is to reveal that greed and aversion as strategies for happiness are not what they're cracked up to be. And so the, it's the mindfulness that begins to reveal this. We can, we can recognize greed and aversion relatively easily. They're not always that easy to see, but we can tell, you know, sometimes through the stories that we're telling in our minds, we can, we can tell, I want that, or boy, I hate that thing, I need to get rid of it some of the thoughts that are in our minds can begin to point out to us a greed or aversion or at work. And we can be curious about, okay, I talked about the basic movement for both of those being, see if you can take your attention, you know, out of the thing that we want or want to get rid of and turn towards the experience of the wanting or the aversion itself. And that begins to reveal something different about our minds and it begins to reveal that those as strategies greed and aversion are not very useful in terms of finding our way to a more reliable kind of happiness and so greed and aversion can be at least somewhat recognizable in our experience delusion is much harder to see I mean, by its very nature, it obscures itself. So a lot of what I'd like to talk about today is kind of more of, a, of an understanding of how delusion works in our minds so that we might begin to be able to recognize when delusion is happening. Maybe we'll be able to start to know that, know that delusion is happening. Kind of one of the most, um, delusion is, is the most fundamental of these three, uh, they're called the roots of suffering essentially. These greed, aversion, delusion are understood in, by the Buddha's uh, journey. He pointed to these, he said these three are, are what obscure our minds. And while delusion can arise out of greed and aversion, and so we may, 
And we can kind of see this, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but when we, we are in an aversive state, some of you may have noticed this, or in a greedy state, you know, if we're in a kind of a state of um, not liking things, something that tends to happen, I mean, maybe there's something that's happened that we don't like, some specific event that we don't like, But often what tends to happen is when the mind gets clouded by that thing, it starts to orient and recognize other things it doesn't like. And so it becomes a filter on our mind. We start to see things through that filter, that aversive filter, and we begin to orient towards, I don't like that, and I don't like that, and that's a problem, and that's a problem, and i got to fix that and change that. And so we begin to orient to our experience through that filter of aversion. Similar thing can happen with greed. And this is a form of delusion because essentially that filter is letting some things come in to our experience and other things not come in to our experience. I um, had a kind of... Well, I'll I'll just, just... describe this to you, um, for, see if we can take it through each of you in your own experience. Just envision for yourselves walking into a space that you've never been in before. You know, what happens to you when you go into a new space? There are three basic modes that might happen. One might be that you orient towards things you like in the room. Oh, that's pleasant. I like that. Ooh, isn't that nice the way that's arranged? Or it's a beautiful flower or it's so simple in here, something. Others might orient more towards what they don't like. It's all brown. There's no color. There's no art on the walls. So orienting towards what we don't like. Or the, another a version of this might be we, we kind of are a little confused about what's going on here. You know, what's, what's happening here? How do I fit in? So these three basic orientations to walking into a room. It's not that there are only things that we don't like there or only things that we like there or only confusion but we, we each carry an orientation through the world. And it, 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 it creates a filter through which we see the world. And this filter that lets us take certain things in and not other things in is one of a very powerful form of delusion. Because we walk through our world thinking we're seeing things accurately thinking we're experiencing things as they are. But as I think it's Anais Nin made the famous comment, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. We carry our perspectives through the world and we don't see everything that's happening. So this is a way in which delusion can arise out of greed and aversion. And yet, delusion is more fundamental than greed and aversion. In fact, greed and aversion are shot through with delusion. And we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. This, this basic view that um, having what I want will make me happy. Getting rid of what I dislike 
that will make me happy. So those, that view, those beliefs are kind of the ground out of which greed and aversion grow. And they are fundamental uh, kind of misunderstandings of, of what happiness is in the first place and how it's possible for us. So greed and aversion come embedded with delusion. And yet delusion can, can exist without greed and aversion. So it's a more fundamental kind of, of a pattern in our minds. So I'd like to go through three uh, vari- variations on delusion. Make, think of these as kind of deepening layers of delusion from the most obvious kind of delusion to the uh, more subtle. And so the, f- the, the three that I'll talk about are kind of the first being a, a disconnection from experience. Just unawareness of what's happening around us. This is, is probably the most obvious form of delusion when we're, we're lost in thought, for example. The second form has to do with um, um, delusions that are based in views, opinions, beliefs that come from our own personal conditioning. Views that come from uh, our personal condition, our societal conditioning, our cultural conditioning, so many different kinds of conditions that we have. Views are created. We don't see those views and then we, we walk through the world carrying those views, not knowing their views. And that's a big way that delusion operates for us. We can be aware. We can be mindful even and not know a view is working. And so this is a deeper kind of delusion. It's not about being lost in thought and, and not knowing, but it's not seeing a perspective as a perspective, not recognizing a view or a belief or an agenda is happening. And we, we, we walk through the world almost all the time with some form of view, view belief, or agenda. And so the, 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 the um, point isn't to get rid of them, but to begin to recognize them. Oh, this is the view that's operating right now. This is the agenda that, that I'm working with right now. That's the second kind. The third kind is what I'll call human delusion. The, uh, the views that we operate with that we don't see um, from our personal conditioning, I'll call those kind of, those are more personal or cultural delusions. Um, then there's a deeper layer of delusion that we all share as human beings. Now, we can, you know, human delusion, that fundamental distortions of how we see the world. F- very fundamental distortions of, around uh, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, what is unreliable to be reliable, what is uncontrollable to be controllable, what is not self to be self. And so these three areas, um, we'll see try to get through each of them. I'll try to, I, what I'd like to do today is to, to kind of do an overview, <laughs> a little bit of an overview of these. And then um, maybe in some subsequent weeks dive into each of these in a little more depth because there's so much to explore. So the first, the, the most obvious kind of not being connected with experience, that kind of 
lost in thought. Uh, we are not connected to the present moment because we are enchanted, essentially, by our, uh, our thoughts. And so there's a, 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 we kind of step out of the present moment into thoughts of past or future or even thoughts of, pre- of the present moment. But we are, are not really connected to what's actually happening here and now because we have so many thoughts going on. So this is a kind of a, um, a disconnection from experience. We are moving through the world almost in a dream. I mean, many of us have had this kind of experience. Uh, um, I've had it a number of times while driving, you know, that I get in the car and maybe I turn on the radio and I'm listening to what's on the radio and my mind goes, moves into that world and um, lose track of the road, you know. <laughs> and yet, and yet, you know, there's something that's paying attention, right? There's something that's paying attention because I managed to end up where I'm going. But I get to where I'm going, it's like, wow, I don't remember even taking that exit. So that is a form of delusion that we are so lost in our world of thoughts. Fortunately, there is some part of our minds that tends to take care of us like we can be walking down the street completely lost in our world of thoughts and yet we don't run into other people or we don't run into trees or you know step in front of cars because some part of us is aware and yet the um the kind of delusion we're talking about here is the not knowing uh, that kind of disconnection from present moment experience and so while some part of us is aware of present moment experience, we are not consciously aware of present moment experience. And this is a form, a very powerful form of delusion. A good way to begin to explore this kind of delusion. It's hard to explore directly because when we're lost in thought, we're not aware that we're lost in thought. And yet in the moment when we remember, I talked about this in the, in the guided meditation, the, the mindfulness returns at some moment. And in that moment, if you are curious about mindfulness returning and curious in particular about the difference between what it's like to be lost in thought and what it's like to be aware now, there is a moment in, in that return of mindfulness as mindfulness returns, there's kind of a recognition of the difference between what it was like a moment before when we were in an unreal world, in living in our thoughts, living in that, that fantasy or that argument or whatever we've constructed in our living in a construction of mind, essentially, what it's like to live in a construction of mind and what it's like to be connected with the present moment. And so that moment of remembering, that moment when mindfulness returns is a prime opportunity to begin to get familiar with what that kind of fuzziness of mind is like or that kind of enchantment is like, the enchantment of living in that constructed reality. 
as we begin to uh, notice that difference as mindfulness returns, it's almost like there are places in our practice, places in our day, where it's like there's a weakening of mindfulness. Uh, and, you know, we can start to see or get familiar with, so there's a weakening of mindfulness, but it's not completely gone. And we can begin to recognize uh, the mind kind of beginning to get that hook into that unreal world. And so as we begin to get familiar with it, coming back in the moment of remembering, getting familiar with that experience, almost in retrospect, and we don't have to try to do this, you know, trying to, trying to look back and say, well, what was it like a minute ago? But it's more the, the waking up, the moment of waking up can reveal that difference. We don't even really have to try to do it. Now, if in the moment of waking up we are judging ourselves and, and telling ourselves, oh, I'm, I, I failed, I'm, I, I'm not paying attention, we've missed that opportunity. And so, uh, you know... One way that I explored this at one point that really supported my letting go of the judgment around the wandering mind was I just I said to myself at the beginning, it doesn't matter how many times my mind wanders during a sitting. Every time my mind wanders is an opportunity when I wake up to see that difference between being lost and being present. And so I just, you know, did my practice as best I could and oriented towards, okay, that moment of remembering. What is it like to recognize that difference? That really supported me to let go of that judgment about the mind wandering. And as we get familiar with that difference, there's more of a, of a sense of what it's like for our minds to kind of hook into that, that, uh, that world of constructed experience, that, that spaciness or that um, disconnection. We, we begin to get familiar with that feeling and we can begin to see it start. And with, with seeing it start, we may have the possibility of staying here, staying connected, being present. There's some other form, ways that this form, this disconnection can manifest, um, can, can come about. There's a, a kind of the form of restlessness of mind, of the mind just kind of spinning and whirling, um, not able to kind of connect with experience because it's spinning around. That's another form of this kind of um, delusion. Uh, the kind of falling asleep, not so much being lost in thought, but just kind of checking out in a spaced out state. That's another form of this delusion. Now these states of restlessness and sleepiness or the, the kind of mind that's spinning and the, the mind that is kind of sinking or spacing out, they're not inherently deluded. They're not inherently um, disconnected. Because it is possible to be aware that the mind is spinning. It is possible to be aware that the mind is spacing out. But they, these two are states in particular. The restless mind and the sleepy mind or the dull mind are states that I'd say we have a habit of delusion with. We have a habit of disconnection with. 
And so they're, they're useful to highlight for us. It's like we can easily be caught in them as states, but it's really helpful not to, to think of the state itself as the problem. It's not that we, it, we can actually be aware. Restlessness is happening. The mind is searching for something, spinning. We can be aware of the mind kind of drifting daydreaming. We can be aware of that. And if you are aware of it while it's happening, then it's not delusion. You are, are knowing what's happening while it's happening. A second kind of delusion I'd like to explore is this delusion based on our conditioning our personal, our personal conditioning, the conditioning from our families, from our childhood, from our cultures. <clears throat> Basically, this is, um, you know, this is somewhat in the news these days. There's a, there's a, uh, a uh, psychological concept called confirmation bias, where we tend to um, take in information based on what we already believe. And so this is kind of how this works when we are thoroughly immersed in a view. When we, we have a particular view, sometimes we don't even know that we have a view. You know, there's so many views that we have about our culture in, in particular. I mean, views about, we, we have views that are embedded in how we interact with each other from the time that we're children. You know, how close do you stand to somebody you don't know? Do you make eye contact? How long do you make eye contact? Do you shake a hand? Do you hold hands? What, what, how do we engage? Those kinds of um, perspectives are conditioned into us. And when we don't... Um, meet somebody from another culture, we don't recognize that there's something, you know, there's a view going on here. But if we move into another culture, we may begin to quickly recognize a discomfort. And that discomfort may be a sign that some view is operating that we're not so aware of. We may feel discomfort. People stand too close. They stand too far away. They make too much eye contact. So these are just simple, very simple kinds of... of um, um, conditions that influence us. And when we are, we, we live in a view, so, you know, we, we are raised with, with views, perspective, beliefs. We, we, you know, growing up in our families, we probably, uh, uh, our views about other human beings are shaped, our views about other cultures, other, um, you know, political views. They're, they're all shaped by our families, and then they may be shaped again, shaped in another direction as we leave families, our families and move into, uh, into the world, into college and, and expose ourselves to, to more people. So there's, there's a, a variety of conditions that impact us and impact our views. But what happens is that as our views are shaped, they become so thoroughly well, they become kind of subconscious, I would say. Many of our views become subconscious. And then as we, 
interact with the, the world, we don't see that we're relating to experience from a view. We just take it to be what's true. And this is the, this is the area, this is one of the areas where it real, the delusion becomes problematic in a way. Because we, in this, uh, the theory of confirmation bias is that we tend to um, take in information that agrees with what we already believe and we tend to discount experience information that does not agree with what we believe. This, this, there have been a lot of studies done about this um, uh, since, uh, since about the 1970s, I think, uh, the, began exploring this, this notion of how are beliefs formed and how tenacious are they. But um, Proust, I don't know when Proust wrote. Does anybody know when Proust wrote The Remembrance of Things Past? I don't know. It was, I mean, but it's before the 60s, I think. The 1800s, thank you. So Proust had this to say on this topic. Facts do not find their way into the world in which our beliefs reside. They did not produce our beliefs. They do not destroy them. They may inflict on them the most constant refutations without weakening them. This is very much what we see in our minds and in the world. It's much easier, I would say, to see this in somebody else than it is to see it in ourselves. So that's, <laughs> that's useful to recognize, you know, that this, uh, this confirmation bias, that we tend to take in information that agrees with what we believe and don't take in information that disagrees with what we believe. In fact, we discount information with what doesn't agree with what we believe. We actively deny it. We actively and, and part, uh, one study that, that was kind of interesting done in the 70s at Stanford created a, a, um, this um, a simple view about firemen doing their job through reading very, one point of information. In one case, um, this person, you know, it was, it was stories about different, different firemen and they were completely made up stories. Completely made up stories. And uh, in one story, it was something like the fireman, when he, um, uh, he was a very careful person, and he followed the safety guidelines to the letter, and he was a very good fireman. He had a lot of success. He did, he, you know, he, he saved a lot of buildings, he saved a lot of people. In the other version of the story, the, per, the, the fireman was doing that same very careful application of the rules and was not a good fireman. He was, he was constantly told he was not doing well. And so that was the story that, that people were told. And, um, and then they were um, told a little bit later that they were made-up stories and that the, the, the study was about something else, you know. So they were told that, the, that, the, that these stories were made up um, and that there was no, no actual fact to these stories. But then they were asked to um, say whether they thought a fireman who 
uh, followed the safety rules would be a good fireman or a bad fireman. And the people who heard the story that the, the, the fireman who followed the rules and was a good fireman said that that would, what is what a good fireman would be and likewise with the other story. Even though they were told it was made up story. They were told that and then they were asked to offer their opinions about it. There was a, a definite skew that people who'd heard each story had a view that corresponded to the story they'd read. One exposure to a fact and the view was formed. This is humbling and somewhat um, frightening, especially in the, the world, the climate of, of our culture right now where it's hard to know what's, you know, what, what we're getting in information. So the, the, um, the first thing that we're exposed to has a very powerful impact on our minds. And so we need to become aware of this. There's a lot of different ways in which this kind of bias influences us. We see things in one way and not in another way. I'll go through a couple of different ways this kind of delusion works about views, agendas, biases, where we, where we uh, take in certain information and not other information. So one of, um, one of the kind of simplest but still very profound is um, a, um, an agenda. If we have an agenda to do something, our... Um, The information that we take in as we're doing that task, it screens in the information that's relevant to that task and screens out information that's not relevant to that task. This is not inherently a problem. In fact, this is useful. It's not not bad that our minds can focus in this way. It supports us to be able to get things done. But what is a problem is uh, the belief that we have that, and this is a very powerful belief, that um, when, we are, when we are seeing something, and you know, when we're taking information in, we're seeing the whole picture. So um, I watched a, a program on this, you know, how perception works, and there was a place where we were asked to pay attention to how a magic trick works. And I was looking very closely, seeing if I could figure out how the magic trick worked. And maybe I figured out how the magic trick worked, but th- afterwards, the, the program revealed that it wasn't so much about the magic trick, but just, did you notice the giant guy in a bunny suit walk by? You know, I had not seen the guy in the bunny suit. I, I believed that the guy in the bunny suit walked by. I mean, they played it back again, and I believed that he'd walked by. It was, it was remarkable that my mind could have missed something that obvious. And what the danger is, is the belief that we have that we don't miss things that are obvious. Some number of people in studies like that will claim it has to be a different video. It has to, it, I would have seen that. Not understanding this tendency we have to 
to focus and that our minds do screen out even extremely obvious things when we are focused. So this is a form of delusion, the belief that we are taking in all information. We are absolutely not, almost never are we taking in all information. We are always functioning with some kind of a view or bias. And so being aware of that is really useful. We have views about ourselves, what we can do, what we're capable of, who other people are. And based on those views, we, we tend to kind of put people in a box. Oh, that person is that kind of person. You know, so we, we categorize people. We believe certain things about people. This is a form of othering. You know, we, 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 create, uh, you know, we create who they are based on concepts. <coughs> and we create ideas about who we are based on concepts. Proust also had something to say about this. Our social personality is a creation of the mind of others. Even the simple act that we call seeing a person we know is in part an intellectual one. We fill in the physical appearance of the individual. We see with, we fill in the individual, we fill in the physical experience of the individual we see with all the notions we have about them. And of that total picture about others that we form for ourselves, these notions certainly occupy the greater part. Proust pointing out that mostly what we see when we encounter another person is our views about them, not who they actually are. This is another area where so much suffering is born in our, in our worlds, that we, we relate to people through our ideas about them. Not, and again, it's, it's, it's not, a lot of these things that I'm talking about here right now, these forms of delusion that I'm talking about, are based in um, strategies of our minds that make it easier for us to navigate the world. If we had to constantly take in all the information that's bombarding us, we would be overwhelmed. And so our minds use these strategies to help us navigate the world, to help us recognize this, this kind of person, that kind of person. And yet, and so it's not inherently a problem. It's part of how our minds work. But what is a problem is, again, this idea that we have that we are seeing things accurately as opposed to relating to experience through our views. And so this is beginning, again, what I'm hoping here is to expose to you this, this vast world of views <laughs> that we are relating to experience through and to begin to be curious about what views are, uh, am, I, am I operating with. If there's suffering happening, some kind of view or belief is operating. Even if suffering isn't happening, some kind of view or belief is operating. But often that's a useful question to ask ourselves. What am I believing right now? If we, if, we, if we meet up with some kind of struggle in the world, what am I believing right now? This can begin to expose these views. And if we can recognize, again, it's not about saying, I shouldn't believe that. But it's more about recognizing, oh, this is a belief. 
When beliefs are not seen, they're functioning, we are functioning as though they are truth, as though it is how reality works. When a view is seen, there's the possibility to have a little space about that, to see it's a, maybe it's a perspective rather than reality itself. Well, that's just a few of the ways that kind of delusion works. And I think in a couple of weeks, I'll, uh, I'll be away next week, but in a couple of weeks I'll talk about views more. Because there's, there's, there's so much to explore around working with views, beginning to uncover them, and beginning to see, again, it's not about not having views, but about recognizing the views that we have and becoming aware of how they influence how we take in experience. The more uh, subtle, um, maybe the most insidious kind of, of delusion, it's related to the, um, the delusion of views, but these are views that we seem to all share as human beings as opposed to being views that are created by our culture or our families or our friends or how we are raised or what we encounter in our lives. These views that we, when we um, look out at the world, we tend to attribute permanence to experience, to... Um, to things in the world, to relationships, to governments. We tend to attribute a kind of a permanence to them. We attribute, a, um, we attribute reliability to things that are not reliable. And we attribute um, controllability to things that are uncontrollable. Another way of saying that is that we attribute self to things that are not self. And again, each of these, I, will, I think what I'll do is I'll just do a really brief overview of this right now and then in subsequent weeks go through. I think each of these deserves a whole talk itself. <laughs> How do we do this and, and what, you know, it, 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 this is basically three, th- the, uh, the Buddha talked about seeing these three, seeing that things are impermanent, unreliable, not self, is a way to undermine the way that we cling, the way that, we, the way that this delusion operates in greed and aversion is based in not seeing these truths. And so we can begin to, um, to be curious about these views. So taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, taking what is not self to be self. One of my teachers, Saito Utejaniya, um, describes this, and this again, this is where it is, it is insidious. Um, and this is a paraphrase of what he says. He says, this kind of delusion doesn't mask our experience. It masks the true nature of our experience. And so we are wandering through the world. We may be, we may be mindful of encountering people and maybe mindful of what's happening inside, but not noticing that we are attributing permanence, reliability, controllability to 
our experience. So just a little bit about each of these and just a, the most kind of broad way to kind of things that we tend to take as, oh, I'll just let it go. It'll stop in a moment. <laughs> um, we, tend to, um, we tend to take our lives to have a form of permanence. We tend to believe that we are immortal. I mean, not, not at a, I mean, we know. I mean, if, if you ask anybody, are you going to die? They'll say yes. But that's not how we engage in the world. And in a moment, we don't believe we're going to die in the next moment. Unless we're on our deathbed, perhaps. You know, in a moment, we don't believe that the, 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 the very powerful truth that we do not know when we're going to die. We do not know. The other day I was listening to the news and, you know, we, can, we see this actually and this is, uh, this is uh, one Indian text, the Mahabharata, called this kind of delusion the greatest wonder of humans that we can see the evidence for our own mortality everywhere we look. But we do not really take it in that, yes, this too could happen to me. So it's, it's staring us in the face. Every time we turn on the news, every time we listen to, um, to the radio or, or the, the, the news program. The other night I was listening to the news and there was a story about a small plane that had taken off from a, an airport in the Riverside area in, uh, in, in Southern California and had crashed shortly after takeoff into two houses. You know, quite literally, a plane falling out of the sky. You know, it's like, that could happen. It's not that likely, which is why we tend to, you know, ignore it as a possibility. And, and, and it's not, but, but what I, I want to point to, too, is it's not about, like, being depressed. For me, actually, the acknowledgement or the recognition of my immortality actually brings a lot of joy into this moment. It's like, I don't know how long I have left in my life. And what can I do in this moment that will serve myself and the world? And so that not knowing, that becoming aware of our own mortality does not have to take us, take us into a depression. It can actually have a very different impact on us. So not, not noticing our own mortality. Not taking it in at a deep level. Another, another way that we tend to impute permanence is to our mind states. You know, we, we tend to believe something's happening and it's like, you know, all evidence to the contrary, you know, we, we have lived our lives seeing our minds change. 
You know, we've lived our lives often noticing, you know, anger arises and passes away and frustration arises and passes away, all forms of reactivity. But when we're in it, we think it's going to be like this forever. And so that's delusion, that that attribution of, a per, of permanence. And so when you, a, a way to begin to explore this is look at what you think is solid. Look at what you think is forever. And begin to recognize the coming and going. So this is beginning to notice impermanence. It is a kind of a counter to that view. Whatever we take to be solid and long-lasting does change. Some things change more slowly than others, but at the same time, there's a way in which we can see the uh, changing nature of whatever's happening. And seeing what is unreliable as reliable. Now, this is the basic uh, delusion that underlies greed and aversion that we believe that um, getting something, having something pleasant will make us happy. We believe that getting rid of something unpleasant will also make us happy. It does create a form of happiness, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, it does create a form of happiness. The Buddha's instructions for us with that, notice how long that happiness lasts. How how, how much um, um, how much does it actually satisfy? It satisfies for a moment or a few moments, and then the level of satisfaction we experience from it wanes, and we're off looking for something else to satisfy us. This is that kind of hamster wheel that we we get on. And so noticing this, this, uh, again, not to try to say I shouldn't, not to try to um, uh, stop ourselves from uh, from doing these things, but more to be curious. The Buddha, in his, his teaching, he, he, he suggested, notice the gratification that comes with getting what we want, the gratification that comes with getting what we don't want. And how long does it last? And so he, he encouraged us to start where we are in terms of this exploration. He, he didn't say, stop doing that, stop trying to get what you want, stop trying to get what you don't want. Unless it's creating harm in the world, he did, he did put that kind of a, of a caveat on it. You know, if it's creating harm in the world, he said, you know, that's, that is not helpful. And so avoid those kinds of actions. And then begin to look at those kind of tendencies that we have towards stringing together moments of pleasure, or stringing together moments of getting rid of what we don't want. And, and, and notice, how long does it actually last before we're off on the next, the next thing, the trying to find the next little bit to add to our list? And then <clears throat> seeing what is not self is self. This one, this one uh, is a huge topic. Um, 
we can begin to explore this. I mean, the, the sense of self, I would say, is one of the most powerful views in human experience. It seems so true. It seems so obvious. I mean, how, how can it be wrong if it's so obvious, this, this sense of self? Well, it's not exactly wrong, but it doesn't, um, it's not what we think it is. We impute to a sense of continuity, a sense of, of you know, the, the, this being traveling through time. We impute a kind of uh, unchanging essence in the middle that is traveling through time. And what the Buddhist teachings point to is that it's not that there's not some kind of continuity and connection over our lives, but there's no unchanging essence there. It's all conditions tumbling on. It's just a changing experience that we are attributing or seeing a sense of self in there. And actually, as we start to look at this, as we get curious, what do I take to be self? Well, the first thing that often happens is it's hard to pin down. You know, it's like, I can't point to anything in particular. But there are times when we have a strong sense of, whew, that feels like, yeah, you know, I'm right. If there's a sense, a very strong sense of self that comes up, it can be useful to explore that. You know, so, oh, what is that like? What does it feel like to feel that sense of I in the middle of that? And, and then, you know, what happens to that sense of I? Does it last? What seems to happen is that we have a bunch of different senses of, of self, a bunch of different things that we have attributed self to, and we've somehow magically like put them all in a little bundle and said, that's me. But we have, we have like a self in relationship to our parents, a self in relationship to our siblings, a self in relationship to a partner, a self in relationship to friends, a self in relationship to people we don't know, a self in relationship to um, categories of people. And, and as we come into contact with, we have selves in relationship to experiences. I, I had a self in relationship to being a dancer. I was a dancer. And then my body gave out. And I couldn't dance anymore. I identified as being a dancer for long after I couldn't dance anymore. And there was so much suffering around that. So we have so many different identities and they have different feelings. And so what is it that you're taking to be self in this moment? What is it that you're taking to be self? And being curious about how different they can be through the course of a day. The evidence for self not being a continuous entity is staring us in the face. But it's very hard for us to see that evidence. It's very hard for us to see that evidence because of this 
confirmation bias. We believe that self to be there. So what we take in confirms that I'm an entity that's traveling through time. And we don't take in the information that disconfirms it. So my hope is that in describing this, that there's some interest in being curious about how delusion works and uh, maybe an exploration of these three areas, of the, the area around disconnection from experience, the area around our views, our opinions, our ideas, our agendas, and how they influence how we take in information, and these human delusions. And so, more to come. <laughs> Thank you for your attention.